Hello and welcome to Cage Club, two fans, 74 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Adaptation from 2002. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And with us today, we have a special guest. We have John Brooks, the co-host of my last podcast, Sports for Starters. Hello, John Brooks. Hello. How are you doing today? I am well. How are you? I'm great. Good. Now, here's a question for you that we ask all of our guests. Why do you want to talk about adaptation? That's a great question. <laughs> I have a particular feeling about Nicolas Cage and the way I perceive Nicolas Cage, and I find that adaptation is the best encapsulation of what that feeling about Nicolas Cage is. The Nicolas Cage of my existence is best summed up by adaptation. Well, what is that perception? How do you perceive his career? Well, I don't especially like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> I don't think Nicolas Cage is a good actor. I don't say that even as a slight against him. I can't think of an, a single movie, and that includes Leaving Las Vegas, the ones for which he has the accolades and the awards and what have you. I can't think of a single movie where Nicolas Cage, what he's actually doing is anything that I would call acting. And I think this is part of the appeal of him and always has been, uh, and why he has kind of the cult following that you guys represent, is that he's a performer, he's not an actor. And it's all about performance. Sometimes it seems like he's actively trying not to act, that he's trying to not be an actor, he's trying to be a performer. In a weird way, he has more in, in common with, like, a Charlie Chaplin than anybody else. There's this Nick Cage persona, and he performs the hell out of it in certain movies and kind of phones it in in other movies, but it's always kind of there. To me, that persona, that performance aspect of Nick Cage is most obvious and I think most effective in a movie like Adaptation, which is also a movie I don't like very much. <laughs> But I like so much about it that, like, every time I watch it, I, I just feel it's, it's, I'm so drawn to it. I'm so compelled by it. But. So what's kind of interesting about a lot of what you said, and obviously Mike and I disagree with a lot of what you said. Mm -hmm. The last episode we had Lindsay Gibb on, and she was the author of National Treasure Nicholas Cage, which is basically Cage Club the book. And you can buy that book at Amazon. She had in there a quote that Sean Penn once said that Cage is not an actor, he is a performer. So basically exactly what you said. I think Sean Penn meant it as a slight... But Cage was like, yeah, you know, you're right. Like, there is, like, life is a performance. Like, whatever. Like, this is how I approach things. And I, you might mean it as an insult, but I'm not going to take it as one. Mm -hmm. She also compared Cage to the silent film eras, to the Charlie Chaplins, to these guys who are sort of larger than life. It's like a different kind of acting than what we are used to seeing. Or, to use your word, a different kind of performing than what we're used to seeing. And I think that in terms of adaptation you know, where he's playing these two different characters, the performance that he gives in both of them is so different. I think it is, you know, if you're, tr if you're comparing him to these oversized, larger-than-life characters from the silent film era, I think watching his body as Charlie and as Donald in adaptation is sort of an interesting place and sort of the best place to take a look at that. Absolutely. I, I agree. And I, you know, one of my other favorite performances of his, I'll now use that word, is Face Off. And, you know, I, I, I kind of feel the same way about John Travolta. I think John Travolta is a lot less naturally gifted, maybe a slightly better actor in terms of technicality than Cage is. The way that those two play each other. The way that John Travolta plays the Nicolas Cage performance, and the way that Nicolas Cage plays the John Travolta performance, I have a hard time thinking of two other actors who could so easily convincingly become each other, where, like, for most of that movie, you really are convinced that they are the opposite people. By the same token, in adaptation, at no point are you ever aware of the trick cinematography that there really is two Nicolas Cages talking to each other at the same time. And I think that's a unique ability of his, like part of his kind of, I don't want to say hamminess, but just sort of all-in performance quality, that kind of Charlie Chaplin quality, makes that possible. If it was like two, I don't know, like Tom Hanks's talking to each other, like I feel like I'd be constantly aware of it. You know what I mean? Whereas when it's two Nicolas Cages, he's so on a different plane of existence than anybody else in that movie that it works, and, it, and I think it only works because of him. I love this movie. Uh, it's, I actually kind of think it's one of his best performances because we're getting two cage for the price of one here. <laughs> yeah, you know, like you were kind of alluding to, he embodies these two completely different characters so entirely. And you're right, I don't think, you know, you don't really see what I would call him, like, acting. He's just sort of becoming, just is. And it's more about... 
that, I think, than anything else, really. I just wanted to say something I've been thinking about recently doing Cage Club. People don't really cut him a lot of slack for his taking a lot of chances and going over the top, as they say. But there are those guys, you know, like, look at someone like Gary Oldman, right? There's a guy who, you know, from Dracula to Sid Vicious to Leon the Professional, his role in that, like, the guy goes over the top. But he always gets a pass, you know? And it's interesting to see what people uh, and why they're willing to do that. Is it his British accent, perhaps? Because he's (laughs) from another country that, you know, is just expected. Guys like Christopher Walken, and to me, that guy, you know, he's boring now to me, and he's sort of become my meme and my sort of go-to joke because he just sort of does Christopher Walken all the time, and people love it, yeah, but it's super stale in my opinion, and, you know, he's really not taking those chances that you see guys like Cage trying to take. When it comes down to a movie like Adaptation, you're right, like, I'm going back to a list of people who have played twins, you know, you got like Jeremy Irons and Dead Ringers, but then you got like John Lithgow and Raising Kane, and it's like, not people aren't really talking about that as much as I feel they mentioned adaptation. Cage's performance in it, I think, is maybe one of those reasons. Like he, he's, he's just so good in this, in my opinion. Well, I think that the reason that people talk about this movie as much as they do, compared to those other two at least, is because it's more recent than the other two, but also because Cage is so great in it, but also because Charlie Kaufman wrote it. I mean, Charlie Kaufman's written maybe five or six movies so far. Right. They're all singularly Charlie Kaufman. Each of them is so worth watching, because even movies that like you're not fully on board with necessarily, yeah. disclaimer, like I almost wholeheartedly love everything he's ever done, they're so unique and they're so unlike anything else that you've probably ever seen. It's worth talking about, it's worth watching, even if you hate Cage, even if you don't think he's great in this movie, the movie itself is just unlike anything else that's really ever been made. And I think that aspect of it, I think that's what makes Cage and Kaufman such a great match. And when I say I don't like the movie, I mean that, like, when I... It never really hits with me, but part of the reason for that is that one of the kind of themes of the movie or the gimmicks of the movie is that the movie never happens, right? The movie, like, keeps almost happening, and then as soon as it does, it kind of gets derailed by something else and moves on in a different direction. It's a series of false starts, right, that, that never really get going until maybe the very end, but even then it's sort of like what really just happened. And there's a lot to unpack as far as that goes. I feel the same way about being John Malkovich, which is that I, I really appreciate the uniqueness and cleverness of it, and not in the way that Wes Anderson movies annoy me, in the way where it's like, yeah, I mean, this really is, it, it feels genuine, like it's coming from this person. One of the great things I think about adaptation that really does work is that you have Nicolas Cage, and he is surrounded by actors with a capital A. I mean, Chris Cooper, Meryl Streep, Maggie Gyllenhaal, you have guys who are uh, actors that are really embodying human beings, and then you have this character who's just disrupting it all. Again, I think it's a a testament to Nicolas Cage's talent. And I do think it's a talent. I'm not disparaging the guy just because I don't think he's an actor in the traditional sense. But nobody else could really make that work. He stands out as this energy that's just so different from everything else going on around him and yet is the driving force behind it. It's brilliantly executed. I mean, that's what makes me keep going back to it. That's why I volunteered for this movie, because I'm so compelled by it, even if I don't think very much of it in the end. So I think that Cage being surrounded by actors with a capital A, as you're saying, and he is this character, I think that's the point, though, right? Like, I don't think it's necessarily... It's not him hamming it up because he's Nicolas Cage. No, no, no. It's Charlie Kaufman writing a screenplay about himself. So the movie should never have happened, really. Adaptation should never have happened, because Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter, the actual real-life person was tasked to adapt this book called The Orchid Thief by Susan Orlean, turn this book that sort of has no narrative into a movie. And he got incredibly frustrated and he was unable to do it. And so instead of writing this movie that he would have hated or he couldn't write, he instead started writing a screenplay about him writing the screenplay. He invented this brother for himself. Like, there is no Donald Kaufman, even though this film is in loving memory of Donald Kaufman, even though Donald (laughs) Kaufman is credited as the co-screenwriter and was nominated for an Academy Award. There never was, there never will be a Donald Kaufman. The reason that Cage, I think, works so well in this movie and why, like you said, he's the perfect team-up is because Charlie Kaufman, it's not like an ego thing because he makes himself look like an awful, horrible, awkward human being. And I think it's someone like Cage or someone... You know, very few actors, maybe Gary Oldman, like you said before, Mike, or maybe not at this time, but maybe more today, 
someone like James Franco, like we talked about with Sonny, there's not too many actors who could sort of pull off not only just like how unlikable and just sort of contemptible character Charlie Kaufman is, but also how amazing and likable and just sweet and genuine Donald is. That's a good point. I also think, you know, Spike Jones is a huge factor in this as well. You know, his directing ability is just like amazing in my opinion he's one of my favorite directors he really hasn't done very many movies but he's able to capture this sort of surreal take on reality that say Wes Anderson can't quite capture like Wes Anderson I feel kind of creates a reality of his own for movies to exist in whereas Spike Jones can twist and mold our world to make it seem just slightly wrong or, or different enough he's also the kind of guy who will let Cage stretch and take chances chances i feel and kaufman as well the three of them just feel like a dream team to me and spike jones just understands where kaufman's coming from having worked on malkovich together and they go to another level here together and it's because they are these types of talents that are on the same page you know they're each pushing the limits of their chosen field right spike jones as a director kaufman as a writer and and cage as we're always reminding everybody <laughs> pushing the boundaries of performance at least in my mind Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman are sort of two sides of the same coin. They're so synonymous with one another that I always think that for either of their movies, I know this isn't true, like I know factually it's not true, but it feels like Charlie Kaufman writes all of these movies and Spike Jones directs all these movies. You know, even like a movie like Her that was written and directed by Spike Jones or even a movie like Synecdoche, New York, that was written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, they sort of feel like it's the same kind of thing, just because nobody else is really trying this. We have other directors that are doing weird things. We talked a lot about David Lynch. You know, there are other directors who could go weird and do these unconventional sort of storytelling. Here, it's sort of the perfect storm, and in the other movies that they work together, you know, being John Malkovich, it's these two minds that sort of work as one, that they tell an unusual story and also direct it in the perfect way to capture that story as best as it can. Right. The other thing about adaptation is that it really is also a sequel to being John Malkovich. (laughs) In addition to not really being an adaptation of a novel that was not adaptable, I like that it wears its audacity on its sleeve, tying itself into being John, John Malkovich, which couldn't possibly have had a sequel, and this is it. And its sequel is this movie that shouldn't exist at all, and also kind of doesn't. <laughs> and from that from that perspective, and like that I'm able to say that even remotely coherently is a is a testament to the fact that Kaufman really is a good writer. And I think that's something that people tend to overlook. What I do like about him, even though I think being John Malkovich is overrated, I think adaptation's overrated, in terms of the way people kind of gushed about it when it came out. I think now it can be looked at a little bit more rationally. What I really appreciate about Kaufman, unlike people like Lynch or people even like Tarantino or Wes Anderson, is that it's not weirdness for weirdness sake. There's something that is genuinely, authentically Charlie Kaufman about what he does. And he's not trying to do something that's going to set him aside from other people, right? That's going to make his own little comfortable nest where he lives with his weirdness. And I feel that's kind of what Tarantino's done to himself. I feel like that's what Wes Anderson's done to himself. And I think where the comparison with Spike Jones is really valid is that I feel that same way about both of them. Everything Spike Jones has done, I feel like, is really authentic. I don't think that a movie like her is just something where he's like, this is a crazy weird idea, and I kind of dig it. I think there was something that was like, no, no, no. I find real, this is how I really see human beings, and I find real expressions of genuine human emotion in this concept. I think that's such a rare thing that it almost doesn't exist outside those two people in Hollywood right now. With directors like Tarantino or Wes Anderson, maybe for better or worse, probably for worse, who knows? I mean, they, they do vary enough, but they sort of box themselves into a corner. Like, they could make other kind of movies, but they're sort of, their audience expects what they expect. Right. It almost feels like, with Charlie Kaufman and Spike Jones. This is like the only kind of movie that they can make. Like, and it's, that's not like a slight. Like, this is just like Charlie Kaufman. I'm like, I'm sure 
could write like a quote unquote normal movie. Right, who they really I don't know, are. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I think he almost falls into this trap where he came out of the box with such a bizarre movie and idea that now the audience come to expect the unexpected. It's almost like the same trap M. Night Shyamalan fell into in the beginning, right? And like he just, you know, kept trying to repeat himself as opposing to push himself. What I like about Kaufman is he's able to continue to push himself and be very unexpected in the same way. It's, it's almost like his style in a sense, which is very unusual. And there's definitely something just more grounded in reality about his strangeness too that works on a better level or on just on a more understandable level than someone like Lynch. Like he, he's able to be as intellectual without being quite as complex some of the time. And that's just something that makes him cross over a little easier. And so the movie really begins with an opening monologue from Charlie Kaufman, from Nicolas Cage. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliche. I really need to go to the doctor, have my leg checked. There's something wrong. A bump. The dentist called again. I'm way overdue. If I stopped putting things off, I would be happier. All I do is sit on my fat ass. If my ass wasn't fat, I would be happier. I wouldn't have to wear these shirts with the tails out all the time. Like that's fooling anyone. Fat ass. I should start jogging again. Five miles a day. Really do it this time. Maybe rock climbing. I need to turn my life around. What do I need to do? I need to fall in love. I need to have a girlfriend. I need to read more, improve myself. What if I learned Russian or something? Or took up an instrument? I could speak Chinese. I'd be the screenwriter who speaks Chinese and plays the oboe. That would be cool. I should get my hair cut short. Stop trying to fool myself and everyone else and think I have a full head of hair. How pathetic is that? Just be real, confident. Isn't that what women are attracted to? Men don't have to be attractive. But that's not true, especially these days. Almost as much pressure on men as there is on women these days. Why should I be made to feel I have to apologize for my existence? Maybe it's my brain chemistry. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Bad chemistry. All my problems and anxiety can be reduced to a chemical imbalance or some kind of misfiring synapses. I need to get help for that. But I'll still be ugly, though. Nothing's going to change that. I think like John was saying earlier, it's unusual and it kind of does jump around and never really begins, and that's by design. Charlie Kaufman, the screenwriter, the real person, is having such a hard time adapting the book that the movie about him adapting the book shouldn't be seamless and easy. And by the end, sort of the last you know 20 minutes or half hour, it kind of becomes a cohesive narrative. We don't jump back and forth. But a lot of the movie is told in present day of Charlie adapting the book six years ago of when... The author, Susan Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, is meeting the subject of her book. It's told in all these different time periods. We're jumping around from time to time to time. Early on in the movie, we have a lot of delineations like, this is when this is, this is when this is. But as the movie goes on, it sort of all just blends into one narrative and seems like it's all happening at once, even though we know it's not. And the way that it's kept all together is through these voiceovers, through voiceovers from Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman, and Meryl Streep as Susan Orlean. So it makes sense to me, at least, that the movie starts and ends with voiceovers because it sort of brings everything together. Yeah, and what I, I love about the way this starts is, you know, the black screen with the voiceover, and it's as if we're inside his head with his eyes closed, listening to what he's thinking. And, and then we cut to this documentary footage of being John Malkovich, and it just puts you in this mood, you know, as a film goer, you know, the film style that it invokes is reality, right? So, like, we start in reality on the set of being John Malkovich, and they cross over and show Nick Cage on the set, and it has like a little title card, you know, Charlie Kaufman. And it's like, whoa, like, I don't know. It just sets up like this sense of realism for me. And also this idea we start cutting from back in time to forward in time to way back to, you know, all over the place. It has that same documentary editing style to it. And so instantly Spike Jones and Kaufman and everyone, they're able to set all that up in like the first couple minutes right there. And like, it helps me ease into the frantic pace and style of this film. A lot happens very quickly. Yeah, they're telling these two congruent stories that are sometimes three congruent stories and that all come together 
together. So a, a lot's going on here. I think what I like about the setup is when I refer to it as a sequel to being John Malkovich, you know, I, I, I really feel that, well, that's what kind of establishes that idea. But if you look at these two things as kind of companion pieces about our perception of other people's creative work, being John Malkovich is really all about the way that what people perceive from other people's creativity is maybe way off and so dependent on the observer. An individual who becomes a movie star can take on, have such a different life of its own, Nicolas Cage being a great example. But, you know, in, in, in Malkovich, when people meet him and they're like, oh, you're the guy from the heist movie. And he's like, I've never made a heist movie. <laughs> and they're like, no, I'm pretty sure you're that guy from the heist movie, the jewel thief or whatever, right? It's a funny gag about the way that the perception of John Malkovich is that this kind of jewel thief character or whatever, which you can totally kind of see. Whereas in adaptation, it, it established itself early on as a movie about the process. And there have been lots of movies about the process. There's been lots of like books about the process, about plays about the process, Plays within plays, deconstructions of what really goes on. What I love about adaptation, especially establishes it early on, is that it's it's about how messy and terrible <laughs> the process is. If you look at a movie like Inception, where it's like, here's what the creative movie making process really is. <laughs> it's very pretentious about it. Adaptation is it's a mess and it's sweaty <laughs> and it makes you not sleep, which is yeah, I love that. I love that setup to it. That's very interesting. I, I wasn't expecting it to be a film about the process, but I love movies like that, and I love that it doesn't glamorize it whatsoever. You know, because like <laughs> it glamorizes it. Yeah, and like if you want that, go watch The Player. You know, like with Tim Robbins or something, because <laughs> right. that's like all super slick. That gave me a lot more to look forward to than just the movie about flowers. Around this time, I was sort of getting into films a lot more and the idea of screenwriting and what that entailed and just deconstructing movies and stuff. So this was at the time I was very into this type of material. And I mean, it's never made more clear than in the first time I think we see Cage and he's at the restaurant table with Tilda Swinton, full flop sweat, just like <laughs> the most unflattering. I mean, keep in mind this whole time that the character, this main character, is the screenwriter himself. So every time he looks unappealing, which is almost the entire movie until maybe the very end, he's doing it to himself. He's just like full of neuroses and like in terms of the process, he's such a brilliant screenwriter, having come off being John Malkovich that like she is willing like wholeheartedly willing to accept whatever he throws at her because she knows in his brain somewhere there are more stories or there's more storytelling ways like being John Malkovich. So even after he goes to her and talks about like the difficulties of adapting a book, she's totally okay with it because like he's such a genius storyteller. Um yeah, I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing, you know, like 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 an Orchid Heist movie or or something, you know, or uh you know, changing the orchids into poppies and turning into a movie about drug running, you know? Why, why can't there be a movie simply about, about flowers? I guess we thought that maybe Susan, Orlean, and, and, and LaRoche could fall in love. Okay, and but I'm saying it, it's like I don't want to cram in sex or uh, guns or car chases, you know, or characters, you, you know, learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end you know i mean it's it's the, the book isn't like that and and life isn't like that you know it just isn't and <clears throat> i feel very strongly about this i love the way the voiceover is used in this film but particularly i like the way it's being set up in this sequence where he says to himself you know i'm a, I'm a fat loser jerk you know i'm an idiot and then the first thing out of tilda swinton's mouth is you're a genius you know <laughs> we love you and <laughs> It does that a lot, and that adds to the way it plays with sort of film style and technique, and that's sort of part of the joke of the film as well, is, you know, breaking the rules of filmmaking and screenwriting and, and showing ways that it can work, and doing that is funny, you know, if you're in on that type of thing, if you know what to look for, if, if you know the idea, like, that voiceover is sort of considered to be a crutch to some screenwriters or, or something like that, the excessive use of it in this movie is clearly, you know, a comment on that, and it's just this other level of enjoyment. I think that the in-joke of screenwriting is made perfectly clear through the Donald character, right? That he is this guy who's woefully bad at everything he does, that he lives in Charlie's home, doesn't have a job, basically has nothing going for him. And then by the end of this movie, after he takes a $500 screenwriting class, 
he pens the hottest script of the year. Hey, Charles, you'll be glad. I have a plan to get me out of your house pronto. A job is a plan. Is your plan a job? Drum roll, please. I'm going to be a screenwriter, like you. Okay, I know you think this is just one of my get-rich-quick schemes, but I'm doing it right this time. I'm taking a three-day seminar, and it's only 500 bucks. Screenwriting seminars are bullshit. In theory, I agree with you, but this one's different. This one's highly regarded in the industry. No, no, don't say industry. I'm sorry, I forgot. Charles, this guy knows screenwriting. People come from all over to study with him. I'll pay you back, buddy, just as soon Let as I explain something to you. Okay. Anybody who says he's got the answer is going to attract desperate people, be it in the world of religion. I just, I just need to lie down while you explain this to me. <sighs> Sorry, I apologize. Okay, go ahead. So, Sorry. So, okay, go. There are no rules, Donald. And anybody who says there are oh, is, but, is but, just, but, you know... Not rules. Principles. McKee writes that a rule says you must do it this way. A principle says this works and has through all remembered time. That was terrible. And everything, <laughs> and everything that he's doing in this script about how it's a serial killer movie where everybody's the same character and Charlie is like throwing out things like, oh, maybe he should like feed parts to himself and like he, he's a librarian. He's like, he's a deconstructor. Like just terrible hacky ideas. <laughs> and Donald's like, oh, that's actually a pretty good idea. Like I'm going to put that in. Okay, there's a serial killer, right? Well, no, wait. And he's being hunted by a cop, and he's taunting the cop, right? Sending clues who his next victim is. He's already holding her hostage in his creepy basement. So the cop gets obsessed with figuring out her identity, and in the process, falls in love with her. Even though he's never even met her. She becomes like, like, like the unattainable, like, like the Holy Grail. It's a little obvious, don't you think? Okay, but here's the twist. We find out that, that the killer really suffers from multiple personality disorder, right? See, he's, he's actually really the cop and the girl. All of them are him. Isn't that fucked up? The only idea more overused than serial killers is multiple personality. On top of that, you explore the notion that cop and criminal are really two aspects of the same person. See, every cop movie ever made for other examples of this. Mom called it psychologically taught. The other thing is, there's no way to write this. Did you consider that? I mean, how, how could you have somebody held prisoner in a basement and, and working in a police station at the same time? Trick photography. Okay, that's not what I'm asking. Listen closely. What I'm asking is, in the reality of this movie, where there's only one character, right? Okay? How could you... What, what exactly would... I agree with Mom. Very taut... Sybil meets, I don't know, Dress to Kill. Cool. I really like Dress to Kill. Until the third act denouement. That's not how it's pronounced. And he makes what would probably be not like a bad movie, just sort of like a generic action that nobody would care about. It becomes like the greatest movie that's ever been made or the greatest right. movie that's ever been written and like the hottest script in Hollywood. With absurd plot holes in it too. And, and I mean, that on its, on its own is a clever gag to, to so kind of knowingly and pointedly make fun of kind of the Hollywood thriller blockbuster. Like, it sounds like one of those movies that comes out in the fall with, like, what's his name? Gerard Butler. Yeah. The kind of movie I envision it being. And it's very clever, but the reality is that the movie that you're watching is basically that, right? When he kind of gives up, at the end of the movie, it becomes this kind of hack thriller from out of nowhere. You know, he says, well, how are you going to pull off having the cop and the kidnapped girl and the kidnapper be the same person and he goes trick photography which is like <laughs> how there's two Nicolas Cages having this conversation in the first place so like he shrugs it off but at the same time all of these motifs and all of these jaded film tropes are all being employed in this movie just because he needs it to like end and happen right um, and gives up on, on, on making anything happen like the movie is constantly making fun of itself as it's going along 
not just because it's funny, but because it tells you something interesting, which is what I really appreciate about it. And I like how when he's in the interview talking about what he doesn't want to do in the movie, he's like, I don't want this to become like some kind of orchid heist that, you know, <laughs> that they, you know, they become a drug kind of thing and, you know, with car chases and sex and violence and stuff. And yet, yeah, that is like ultimately what he needs to resort to in order to make this story interesting. And then we go home and meet his twin brother, Donald, and it's like this voice in his head, right? Right? It's like these mainstream temptations that are always talking to him, like, you should just break from what you want to do and go write, like, the next Die Hard or something like that. It's you know? like it's Tyler Durden. Yeah. Exactly, absolutely. right. And ultimately, like, that voice gets to him, right? And he does find some sort of way to integrate these mainstream tropes into his sort of independent drama. Everything that Charlie is telling Donald not to put in a script or that he thinks is a bad idea makes its way in the script, that they change genres, like, you know, the last half hour becomes a thriller they say make sure that you do not use voiceover he uses voiceover the entire time make sure you don't have a deus ex machina right. you know the villain in the end is killed by a gator like <laughs> everything that charlie shoots down or that the screenwriting class shoots down it all makes its way into the movie somebody who's not necessarily paying attention can sort of be like oh like this is the kind of movie that i like you know there's an action scene there's a chase at the end whereas if you're like paying attention to the actual criticisms and the things he's trying to avoid, you realize that like before too long, all of that stuff is in the movie. When it gets to the scene with Brian Cox, which I think is probably the best scene in the movie, when he asks him a very simple question about, what if nothing happens in your movie? <laughs> and Brian Cox goes in this whole tirade about how all the things that happen in life, and so how can nothing happen in your movie? And basically screams him down. Charlie says, um, thank you. <laughs> Sits back down. <laughs> But then when they're having the talk about, about Casablanca later, that joke to me is also really funny. Part of the kind of the driving force, I think, behind any movie. No movie is ever going to be Casablanca. It was made a long time ago. It can't be touched. Nobody is ever going to compare a movie to Casablanca. And yet, there's this driving force in Hollywood to like aspire to be the next Casablanca. People said Titanic was the next Casablanca. Like, obviously it wasn't. And it's just never going to happen. What I think is funny about that joke is the harder Hollywood tries to make a Casablanca movie, the worse it fails. And it really couldn't fail any more than the idea of taking a movie about a guy who steals orchids in which nothing happens and, like, trying to weave that into the next Casablanca, right? And it does so by throwing in Hollywood tropes and giving up. <laughs> like, that's, that's what I think is so great about that, you know, that constant comparison to Casablanca as the, like, the, the pinnacle of screenwriting. Like, this is not only a movie about screenwriting and writing the perfect script and trying to aspire to make Casablanca, but it's also sort of a criticism on Hollywood as a whole. Oh, that, sure. like, Donald is just like, hey, you know, I'm going to go pitch my movie. And Charles like, don't say pitch. Just, like, like stop <laughs> using these words. You're not, like, you haven't earned the right to use these words. The whole movie, mm -hmm. like, whatever Donald says, like, being brothers with Charlie, this character Charlie, would be the most annoying thing in the world. But Donald doesn't seem to care. No, Donald doesn't. just sort of, yeah. he's just, like, bulletproof. He's yeah. just rubber, and, like, no matter what happens, no matter what Charlie says... Donald's just going to keep talking and just keep using these words. He's, he's probably never used the word pitch before, but he's going to be okay with it. About flowers for Algernon. How he's never seen that movie about flowers. It's just, <laughs> he's so oblivious to what's going on, and just beautifully so. Right. Yeah, and I even feel like they represent the spectrum of, like, screenwriting. Like, Donald is this super flaky, flashy blockbuster guy, but Charles isn't, like, the greatest either, you know? Like, he's got tons of flaws, right? To me, he's on the other side of the spectrum where he's just this sort of pretentious, or he comes across as this pretentious, you know, indie guy with values. Like, you could say pitch. There's no rules. Like, you can <laughs> do things, you know? Like, for him to have this sort of high and mighty thing about him over his own brother at the least and you know his twin brother at that it's not even that he's older or anything so he can't hang that over his head it's just interesting how if the two of them were to merge as one you'd have sort of this perfectly balanced screenwriter as it were in a sense they do a lot of things to get you onto charlie's side but he's also got a lot of issues very socially awkward you know him and his sort of problems with his his girl problems 
a lot of that is getting into the way. So I would almost maybe say I would rather just see his movie and leave all the Orchid stuff out. When Donald first pitches his movie idea to Charlie about how it's going to be a serial killer idea, cliche, like multiple personality, Charlie like shoots it down immediately. He says, you know, cop and criminal are two sides of the same person. It's been done a million times before. In terms of Cage Club, we've seen Cage as a cop and as a criminal <laughs> so many times. So I would love in this movie for Cage to be Charlie and Donald. And then if it became, if we started watching the three, which is Donald's movie, that Cage is multiple personalities. Like, imagine like a movie with like five Cages. Like, it would have been the best. It would, it would have been so good. This is already great. But if you add three more in, in this like cliched, poking fun at Hollywood movie, right. it would have been amazing. I almost feel like that was even a direct reference to Face Off, in a sense, too, where he was both, you know, because that's the one where it's like the cop actually becomes right. the killer to get inside his head. The movie that Donald writes is, is like a lot of Nicolas Cage movies. The ones that show up on Netflix, you know, that he made to pay off his bills. Basically, like, that's that movie. Uh, I was telling Joey yesterday, if you've heard of the movie Identity, which... John yeah, Cusack yeah. and Ray Liotta, yes. right? And, yeah. you know, spoilers for that film, but it's on, like, a lot, especially last month for October. It's, like, eight people in a motel that all turn out to be different parts of a serial killer's personality, and the serial right. killer's, like, in a room somewhere with psychiatrists, like, all around him and stuff. And, and I was just thinking, oh, my God, that, that's how he could have cracked the code to the three. Like, all you gotta do <laughs> is, you know, show the cop hunting the serial killer with the person and then flash to, like, a guy in a room in a mental institution. <laughs> One of the less analyzed aspects of the movie, and we, we've been kind of dancing around this, really Donald doesn't exist. Because Donald really doesn't exist. There is no Donald Kaufman. And so if you look at the movie from the kind of meta level that it's being written, where it's a movie about Charlie Kaufman writing this movie about orchids, and so writing a movie about himself writing the movie... If you take on the surface that Donald never existed, and so as Charlie Kaufman is writing this movie about himself writing the movie, he invents this other character. And I think on some level, we're supposed to take Donald Kaufman like as the, as the things that Charlie Kaufman likes and dislikes about both himself and his job. I think when Donald is talking really enthusiastically about this ridiculous plot twist and how the shattered mirror represents the different elements of the serial killer's shattered psyche. I think that's Kaufman saying, like, I really kind of love that stuff. Like, I love the, like, cheesy, pure entertainment value stuff about Hollywood. And at the same time, like, I hate it, and I hate when people say pitch, and I hate when people use these, like, Hollywood terms. I really do think that we're supposed that what he did was basically take his own personality, divide it up into two, end up having to kill one of them off because there can only be one Kaufman because there only is one Kaufman. Uh, and also, by the way, that gives him a great ending to his movie because it makes the character realize and learn something. So I don't think we're supposed to look at Donald Kaufman as a purely fictional character, nor as not Charlie Kaufman talking about himself in some real concrete sort of way. And I think that what you were saying brings us back to Spike Jones as a director, because he's sort of in on the joke, too, that when Donald is talking about the fractured mirror, in that shot, we see a mirror, and because of that mirror, we can see Charlie and Donald. Like, they're in on the joke, and even though it's not a fractured mirror, because that would be a little bit too on the nose, it's like this perfect blend of, you know, Spike Jones just sort of getting it. It almost starts to feel a little bit like satire, right? And good satire, I feel, can only be accomplished through love of that genre if Charlie Kaufman's, you know, making fun of things that happen in action movies I think it's because he, you know, loves action movies, you know, and he's a, just a fan of film in general, and this in a way feels like him working through his film fandom a lot, and like, how can I integrate a lot of the different things I love about genre into my style, you know, or does that even work, and like, is that part of the crisis of his character in this film you know, he's trying to branch out and do new things but should he just stay inside his little box or is it possible to bring that brand over and cross it over into something completely new and you know make that fresh i think it makes sense that we're jumping all over in terms of this recording because the movie <laughs> kind of jumps all over the place this would be a really hard movie to do chronologically yeah it doesn't follow one narrative it no, follows it, two or three and, and it's not and in chronological order either so right and i mean we all we go all the way back to 4.4 billion years ago we see like the earth <laughs> being formed and we see the dinosaurs it's like the tree of life but not for art's sake just like to make fun of art's sake almost 
I think that is part of like the underlying heart of this movie is that it's not just on the page. It's that Spike Jones is able to use film to show all these different things. Like he could take us back to the beginning of time and show us Charles Darwin like scribbling in his notebook and then show us two Nicolas Cages, you know, hanging out at a party together. Going back to what I said earlier about the fact that like I'm not really a big fan of adaptation. There's a lot of movies that I just love talking about. There's a different experience from watching the movie versus what you take away after the fact. If I can put it into better terms, I don't love watching adaptation. I don't love watching being John Malkovich. There's a lot of movies that I like to talk about because in retrospect, I really like them. Um, I think there's a lot going on there. You like it more in your head than you do in the actual real-time experience of watching the movie. It's not really a pleasant experience to sit down and watch that movie, but there's so much to unpack afterwards that it's almost like funnier and, and more enjoyable in your head after the fact. And I think what, what Mike was saying about the realness of the movie, like it couldn't get a less real movie than this movie. But at the same time, as I was saying earlier, and what I love about Charlie Kaufman, it is authentic, right? It does feel like it's coming from a really honest place. And that really comes through. And that's what makes the weirdness of Kaufman so great and so palatable, because you don't feel like it's just there for weirdness sake. It's not put on. Another thing that helps this movie sort of feel authentic for me is Nicolas Cage sort of creating these two completely separate sides of himself or of this character. And I mean, that just helps sell the reality of the film. I'm willing to buy these two different people played by the same person that feel like they're almost played by two different people. Then I'll be much more inclined to believe stuff about the character of LaRoche when I'm told about him and I see him and sort of his outlandishness and things like that. And, and when they try and push him to an edge and give him twists, like, I go with that as well. Like, this movie isn't realistic, but it is, like you say, authentic and, and feels that way. Anybody trying to act their way through that role would have made it a complete failure. The reason that it works is because Cage just all out performs it. And again, that's why this to me is the embodiment of what I love about Nicolas Cage. Like what I really think is interesting about him is that it's just pure all in performance. He doesn't worry for a second about whether or not people are going to believe that he's in the moment when he's crying. It's just like, here's what I have to say, and I'm going to say it in the most intense and weirdest way possible, because that's what the movie needs me to do. Anybody else in that role, I think, would, be, would have been a failure. There's movies like that where there's certain roles that if you try to imagine another actor in that role, it's impossible. And that's when you know a performance is really great. Ridley Scott once said about Gladiator, when Russell Crowe won the Academy Award for Gladiator, and someone was saying to him, like, do you really think Russell Crowe deserved the award for Gladiator? Ridley Scott said to him this, so you've seen the movie, name me the other actor that could have played Maximus. And it's like, it's, just, it's like impossible. You can't possibly think of another actor who could possibly have taken that role. And that is when it becomes something really singular. And to me, like, that's what this is for Nicolas Cage. Joey, I'm wondering if this is only the second time he's played or portrayed an actual real-life person. I think the boy in blue, Ned Hanlon and Charlie Kaufman. It's almost like when Joaquin Phoenix played Johnny Cash, you know? Like, he doesn't exactly look like him, but he, like, embodied the attitude and the persona and all yeah. of that. And Yep. And sort of, you know, just seeing just Charlie Rose interviews with Charlie Kaufman and, and snippets and things like that, I get that a lot from, from at least the Charlie performance of yeah. Charles Kaufman. He's able to really get in there and become that other guy, which I found interesting. And, and also, you know, like lose himself in the character, but it's, also, it's impossible to forget it's Nick Cage from time to time just because yeah. they look so different, but yet he's pulling it off and he becomes that other person. The other time, and it's not really fully portraying another person was in Leaving Las Vegas, where he plays Ben Sanderson, which is almost pretty much loosely based on John O'Brien, who wrote the novel that Leaving Las Vegas was based on. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of an autobiographical, or it was an autobiographical novel that was adapted into the screenplay, and Cage portrays the main guy. It, it may in fact be more like him than his Charlie Kaufman is like the real Charlie Kaufman. To say he's playing Charlie Kaufman is even kind of a stretch. I think the Cotton Club was also, now if I'm not mistaken, based on an actual real life gangster too. So I just wanted. To I think that's that, true. Yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there before we moved on entirely. Supposedly, when Susan Orlean found out that her book was not becoming a movie, but that the movie was going to be about adapting the book. 
she was sort of worried and she didn't really necessarily like how she was portrayed because, you know, Meryl Streep is this woman who's married, who cheats on her husband, who does all these different things, who essentially at the end of the movie like, goes to kill people. You know what I mean? Like, she, <laughs> she's not a likable person. Okay. The, the way that they sort of got past that or the way that they defended it was Charlie Kaufman said, look how I'm portraying myself. Like, yeah. nobody's coming off well in this movie. Like, people are going to know that these are characters. They're not who the actual person is. It might be based on right. an actual book, might be based on an actual person, but at the same time, this isn't reality. This like, is still a movie. Like, John LaRoche is not, like, a toothless, long-haired redneck. You know what I mean? Like, he's, like, in his 40s or something, and he's, you know, this bald, like, college professorial-looking dude who looks nothing like Chris Cooper. But I think that is also kind of part of the joke. It doesn't matter who these people really are. At some yeah. point, it's irrelevant. It's all about what works best for making a story work. So who cares? I, I, I read that interview too, where she says the same thing. It's not me. It's, it's an this, adaptation, it's, right? Like, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, to bring it all back to that, that's what's going on here. You know, look at all the books that have been translated to film. And the number one argument is the book is better, right? The movie always gets it wrong. To me, well, it's the center of this film in a lot of ways. It's like, we're taking the book and making the movie. That's what we're doing we're not necessarily you know going to use all the content it's like buying the title you know and then slapping the license on a different product and calling it you know whatever you want even the evolutionary sense of adaptation which the the movie makes a lot of references to and the the similarities between just the biological processes and and the creative process and how similar they really are and how messy they really are she becomes this person who decides to kill Charlie Kaufman because the environment calls for it, right? In the same way that evolutionary biology works, if something happens and you, you, you either adapt to it or you die, the, the movie, in order for it to end, because it's kind of going nowhere, needs for her to decide to, to kill him to make an exciting climax happen, almost Darwinian in the way that it, that, that it unfolds. To me, in a sense, it was like, you know, the moment where he met her, everything goes wrong. It's like when the film world and the book world collide like when he gets too close to his subject and it's like no you know yes. right and it's like staying right. too true to the source material and, and he puts like, that off in any way possible knowing that that's going to be the ending like knowing that this collision of these two people is how the ending is going to unfold halfway through the movie he has a chance to meet her he like runs the hell out of there because he knows the movie can't end yet because he's only halfway through it right (laughs) yeah yeah. he almost runs into her at a meeting uh, with tilda swinton then he's like in the elevator and then finally (laughs) at the end when they there's and then it's like talk about well then when he sends sends donald in his place to meet her because he has to right he does in a sense meet her about two-thirds of the way through the movie but it just happens to be donald right and that's sort of i think that's kind of the beginning of the end in a way even though charlie didn't meet her other charlie if you want to call Donald that, met her and knows right then that she's a fraud, that she's a phony, that no one really wants to have dinner with Jesus or Einstein. That people just say that, like whenever they say that, they're lying. Donald is everything that Charlie's not. You know, he's bold, he's brave. Charlie just sort of hangs around awkwardly on the sets. Donald is over there talking to Maggie Gyllenhaal, yeah. getting her number. They start dating. Like he's confident around women. He's able to read people, I think, in a way that not necessarily Charlie can't. But Charlie doesn't have, like, the available... Like, his brain is too cluttered thinking about himself and, like, his own flaws to realize that, oh, maybe the Susan Orlean person isn't a good person, isn't someone that I should be putting on this pedestal because she's lying and she's devoid of passion and all she wants is to feel something, that she's, like, this broken person. And if only he knew that, it would make his job easier. Donald meeting her is the beginning of the end because now Charlie, at least through Donald, knows that she's not what it seems. And that is sort of what leads up to this half an hour, him spying on them, finding about their drug ring, and then them chasing them to the swamp, and just this whole other movie. You mean the denouement? Denouement. Denouement? I can't remember. <laughs> it's been a blast, guys. I gotta run. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast, John Brooks. My pleasure. Um, I think we're, I think we're just about done with the episode, but Mike and I are going to talk a little bit more about it. I think. Okay. If you like the way that John and I had a little back and forth, 
You can find on iTunes, I think it's still on iTunes, Sports for Starters. Sports the number four starters. A lot of stuff is probably outdated now, but if oh, you yeah, want to find out what's happening in sports three years ago. <laughs> and like season three of The Walking Dead. So I mean like, hey, you know, it's it's pretty great. Um, so thank you, John, Burke, for coming on. Lost. Have a good one, John. You too. Bye guys. This hasn't been a normal Cage Club episode. Like we didn't go through from start to finish. But like looking through my notes, I think we covered most of the movie. And it makes sense to me that we jumped all over because this movie jumps all over. As we're nearing the end of the podcast and sort of as we're nearing the end of the movie, we should talk about the end of the movie now because it is this sort of cohesive, single thread, all of the movie's threads sort of come together, right? Yeah, for me that almost starts once he sees his agent and his agent sort of tells him, you know, that you need to see pages, right? And and he gets this idea in his head to go to the city to meet the author, but his brother signs him up for the McKee seminar. Everything after that, when he invites Donald to New York, is when it becomes this fears more into mainstream, right? Is That's when it becomes this heist film. That's when it becomes sort of this romantic, dramatic, exciting heist detective almost movie, right? He like pairs up with him and Donald almost become like Scooby-Doo type detectives <laughs> for the rest of the film. This all makes me wonder, and it's before I was really into movies, maybe you'd remember more because you said this was sort of around the time when you were sort of really getting into movies. How did they market this? Did they market Because, I mean, you could cut together a trailer of this movie really easily that makes it look like a thriller. Of all the movies, like you could sort of cut together a trailer that makes it look like all sorts of different things for this one. I, can, I mean, it's not a huge movie, so they don't have a huge marketing push, but I'm, I'm assuming that they did something. Like, How did they market this? To the best of my recollection... It was marketed off of the name of Charlie Kaufman, like from the mind that brought you being John Malkovich, you know, from okay. the creators of that film and then like starring Nicolas Cage. And it was just sort of this indie film. I don't even remember it making very much noise when it came out. So it sort of is after the fact when it got to cable and home video and think a little down the line when society sort of caught up to this movie that it became a little more understood and appreciated. It definitely feels like a movie that sort of its audience found it or it found its audience. Like a movie, like a Charlie Kaufman movie is never going to be a massive hit, I don't think. And I don't mean that as an insult because his movies are some of my favorite movies. He knows that going in, that mainstream America is not going to either be able to or want to wrap their head around a movie like Adaptation or like Anomalisa, you know, his new movie that I saw at Fantastic Fest and loved and was going to come out in about a month. He writes these movies that are like these very sort of personal, small, weird stories. I mean, now maybe it'll be a little bit different because of the internet, because people know what to look for. But a movie like Adaptation, when it comes out in 2002, people might not know what to do with it. And then over time, you know, as it gets on DVD, as it gets on cable... It's going to find its audience. I would like to go back and watch the trailer for this film, you know, sort of like I did for Face Off, the greatest trailer in Cage Club history, perhaps <laughs> of all time. I'll put that up against the new Force Awakens trailer any day. <laughs> you could almost cut a trailer for this film in any genre, be it like horror, suspense, comedy, because Kaufman ends up injecting his film with all that. And and almost at the end here, it feels like he's making up for lost time a little bit, right? Like the this last movie shifts its tone and stays there, unlike the rest of the film, which is sort of scattered and all over and hopscotching. It's kind of nice here. It's a third act and he gets down to business and and everything, like you say, everything comes together. All the different storylines intersect. Charlie and his brother follow Susan down to Florida to meet LaRoche. And it turns out that they've been having like an illicit affair. And she's been on his pornography site. And they're breeding ghost orchids to extract the peyote-type drug that comes from it. And like Donald and Charlie have just like stumbled into all of this. What I really like about this ending and all these things that you're saying, it seems like Charlie Kaufman saying, I'm never going to make a full movie like this, so like, let me make this kind of weird, generic, almost straight-to-DVD thriller in this movie because my movie allows for it. It can be about drugs, it can be about you know breeding drugs, illicit affairs. He can make almost his own 8mm, right? Put it in this movie that is a Charlie Kaufman movie, and that we're able to give this kind of weird, generic, common thriller feel. We're willing to give that a pass because it makes sense within this world and within this universe that Charlie Kaufman's made. 
Yeah, and it comes across as exciting and thrilling and all the things that it should be. And I think that happens in part for two reasons. One, like you say, you know, he's he. I don't think he ever would intend to make a full movie like this. So this little sort of truncated version of an entire crime thriller here is just very exhilarating, you know. And there hasn't been any action in the entire film. It hasn't really called for it, but you and you don't really miss it until it happens. You know, once there is sort of like a, a chase through the swamp and all this stuff. Like like it, it's a certain energy re-injected into this film all of the sudden, you know, that turn that it takes within this new genre that it has established. Like It's still like able to be engaging in all of that, even though it has fallen into sort of the pattern of your standard thriller type film. And I think what it also does is like what John was saying a while ago is that it gives the movie the closure that it needs, that it kills off, unfortunately, I guess, the Donald character, that they're chasing him through the swamp and then they get in the car Donald gets shot in the arm, and then they get into a car accident. Another, you know, what's this, the second movie in a row and the third time in Cage Club, there's two big car crashes in this movie, right? There's the one earlier that LaRoche is in, and then there's this one at the end. Out of nowhere, a car crashes. Donald is ejected from the car and dies. I mean, we have another Cage on-screen death. Because it builds up and because there's all this action, like, in the movie up until this final scene... There's really no way to conceivably or believably kill off Donald. But when you ramp up the stakes and when you have these threats in the form of Susan Orlean and John LaRoche, it kind of makes sense that Donald would be killed because they're, they're screenwriters. They're not, they're not meant to be running through the swamp being chased by guys with guns. They're not who they are. They're, they're mismatched and they're in over their head. I totally agree with all of that. And and I was also just wondering, you know, is this a way of Kaufman, the writer, saying, I'm done with Donald, right? Like, I've excised him from my system now. Like, we just went through everything he would have wanted out of my movie, so now I can kill the character. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's almost no need for his character anymore in a lot of ways. Like, the movie's almost over. We've injected the movie with car chase, the action, the thrills, like, all of the mainstream that Donald represents. And not only does it work naturally for the character, it's a proper way to kill him off, but it also works symbolically, I think, too, for Charlie. I can move on now. Like, I've gotten all this stuff out of me in this movie here at the end, and my next movie won't be so action-packed, perhaps. (laughs) He's done with Donald has served his purpose. What I love about Donald in terms of the creation, Donald is credited as the co-screenwriter. Donald is, at the end of the movie, it's the movie's dedicated in loving memory of Donald. It's like he's a real person. Also in the credits, what's kind of cool is that Cage is credited twice, because it's an order of appearance, so he's credited as Charlie and as Donald. Like, Donald is given such, you know, legitimacy. I really wonder if, like, if writing this, Charlie wished that he had sort of a, not like a writing partner, but someone he could bounce ideas off of. He does his thing, and this is sort of like a proper send-off. And he's able to get this out of his system. And the next movie he writes, it's going to be a movie that Donald would not have written. Kaufman is able to provide this, you know, quote unquote, blockbuster climax here. But he does it with the elements that are within the story in the movie. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't necessarily introduce anything out of the blue. We you know that the swamp is sort of LaRoche's stomping ground, and we've seen him there. We know the threats of gators and such and things like that. And, and we know that Meryl Streep's character has sort of been getting more and more addicted to this plant, and, you know, not just needing to see it or being around it, but also the sort of the drugs that it provides and things. We know that Donald's getting sort of more desperate to meet this woman or sort of just to put a cap on this movie and and finish it off. So when all this madness goes down, like I feel like these characters are in a place within themselves that this is how they would act, you know? And, And that is something that is talked about in the film too, that the change will come from these characters if you just sort of listen to them. I appreciated that, that, you know, even McKee says to him at one point, you have to go back, even if you need to set things up for later, make sure that it's all set up. And I just feel like everything in this movie does a good job of setup and payoff, even if it's at times out of order, out of sequence. I never feel that anything is sort of left inconclusive or or unexplained. And it also does what we were talking about earlier, kind of does it like with a little bit of a wink and a nod to the camera. Like we are in a place, like you said, where we can expect gators, but it also 
serves as a way to sort of add in this Deus Ex Machina that sort of saves the day, right? That John LaRoche has them has the drop on them. He has them dead to rights. And the only reason he doesn't kill both of them in the swamp is because the gator eats them. It's a logical ending that fits within the movie, but it also fits within the movie within the movie almost. That yeah. it's like, hey, like, you know, remember that thing that, that we talked about how you should never do? Well, I'm going to do it. And <laughs> it's going to make sense, but it's also going to be like, all right. Yeah, it's going to, it's like the voiceover, right? It's like, it's, <laughs> I'm going to break this rule, but I'm going to do it with a wink, you know? <laughs> it's easier to get away with it like that. I don't know. There's just something smart about this movie where the way it's written that, that he's able to get away with things that you couldn't if it was trying to be treated more seriously. I think that's all I have to say about adaptation. Is there anything else you want to cover? There's a couple Cage connections oh. that we haven't gone over. Well, Catherine Keener returns sure. from 8mm and she has you a know? very small cameo, but an even smaller cameo is John Cusack from Con Air who <laughs> revives their, they're all reviving their roles from uh, being John Malkovich on the set of being John Malkovich. Yeah, Malkovich is back, Cusack's there, Cage is there, it's the triumvirate from Con Air all in the movie. A weird kind of off-screen cage connection is that Spike Jones apparently used to be married to Sofia Coppola. Oh yeah, okay. So that so that's kind of cool. Oh, and so another, that's his cousin, technically, right? At one point, they were cousins. I guess so. And speaking of Coppolas, Mark Coppola, who we most recently saw visiting a brothel in New Orleans, was a stand-in for hmm. Nicolas Cage when they were doing the the two different people. So I guess you know he does look enough like Cage, and you know probably helped have Cage's brother there on set. It's just kind of cool. It's like it's a, it's sort of in weird ways a family affair here for adaptation. Yeah. We talked about a lot of the movie. We sort of spoiled a lot of the movie, but we didn't really go through it beat by beat, which is good because I really think that you should watch this. The movie is available for free on Amazon Prime Video. So if you subscribe to Prime, you can get it for free. So that was adaptation. Check it out on Amazon Prime Video or buy it or rent it. Cause I think you get the DVD or the Blu-ray even for just a couple bucks. For all things Nicolas Cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews for the movies, listen to past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Everything Nicolas Cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we had John Brooks with us for a while, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love. Tight, so happy together If I should call you up Invest a dime And you say you belong to me And ease my mind Imagine how the world could be So very fine So happy together